This Quietcast podcast is brought to you by Ideas Digest. I'm Conrad. And I'm Matt. Each week, two optimistic Aussie blokes Very explore optimistic. new <laughs> challenging ideas outside of our echo chamber on our totally realistic quest to achieve world peace, maybe some personal enlightenment. Is that too much of an oversell? Nah, just roll the montage. Okay. I'm right and you're wrong. What are you talking about? Straight men enjoy gay sex. What? The Bible is extremely pro-abortion. Why the hell should I trust you now? Don't define me by what I do in bed. Do you think that kick us out? I've done psychedelics 150 times in my life. You still choose to ejaculate to that. Oh my God. You can have a wife and a girlfriend. This guy just gets your face. He rubs that in. Break your bias. Each week, anywhere you get your podcast, tune in. It's going to be an amazing time. Amazing. <laughs> Hi, friends. I'm Tim Whitaker, and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hi, friends. This is Noah, the podcast producer for the New Evangelicals podcast. And look, I get it. I know that Tim or I say this almost every week, how excited we are for you to hear whatever conversation is happening that week. But oh my God, I am so, so incredibly happy that this talk is getting to you today. This is the last talk that Trip Fuller gave at the end of Theology Beer Camp this year. And by the way, amazing experience. It was so good to meet so many of you for the first time, catch up with some old friends. It was beautiful. It was a surprisingly emotional experience for me. The entire weekend was for a lot of different reasons, and I won't waste your time talking about it here. I'm sure Tim and I will debrief uh, in a future episode together. But this talk, it just perfectly encapsulated so many of the experiences of our community and really resonated with me and where I'm at and in my own journey of negotiating my faith post-evangelical theology and a gospel that honestly wasn't all that good news. And so I'm so excited to share this with you. Tripp shares a lot of his own journey of deconstruction and some of the milestones in that. As soon as it ended, Tim and I found each other at the event and we basically said the exact same thing at the exact same time. We have to get the recording of that. We have to share it with our community. And I really think that you're going to enjoy this. I can't wait to hear what you think. Shoot me a DM. Let me know. Uh, post in the Facebook group. Let's talk about it. I'm so excited to hear what you think. As always, friends, this work is completely free. There are no paywalls. YouTube, social media, podcasts, all of it is fully from the support of donors like you. So if you want to check out the link in the bio and learn about how you can support us financially, it means the world. If you want to support us for free, you can do that too. If you want to leave a review of this podcast in Apple or Spotify, wherever you're listening, it pushes us in the algorithm, helps more people find the show. Again, it means the world. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait for you to hear this and I'll talk to you soon. Hi, I'm Diana from Albany, New York, and I'm a TNE donor. I donate because it's helped me immensely as I process things like the evangelical support of Trump and its response to COVID and the treatment of LGBTQ people. Keep up the great work. 
the first beer camp was in 2016. And normally, because the last wave of deconstruction that was really big was all of us that were a part of the emerging church movement, which a number of you are here and others were like, what the hell's that? When you've had all this baggage and stuff, eventually certain things that are religious get weird. And then you're like, no, we probably aren't going to sing Christian songs. We'll do 90s karaoke in a sanctuary while we're drinking and hope let the Holy Ghost translate. Oh, we're not going to like actually serve the Eucharist. We're going to eat other things. And hope Zwingli was right. Deep cut theology. I see that giggle. But we're, we're breaking that this time because quite a few people that have found all these podcasts in recent years are much newer to having their faith journey ripped out from under them and want to know if what got itself done in Jesus can get itself done outside of homophobia, Christian nationalism, ignorance around ecocide, desiring justice even for your enemy. And I'm like, yeah, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. But this is the first time we've done any of this at the end. I'm super pumped. Thank you for all of you people have made a part of it. And normally at beer camp at the end, I've drank a lot more than I've drank right now. And I do a series of toasts. And the first one is for each person here who helped make beer camp a time you encountered Christ, even if your fingers are crossed. So cheers. So as we've been going through camp, I thought of a series of moments I deconstructed, and I'm going to tell these stories quickly. It, as a form of invitation to a table even. What? Wave at me in 25 minutes. All right. All right, the first one. I was in fourth grade. I was a nerd. And you know what nerds that are Baptist preachers do in fourth grade when it's Holy Week? You read all four Gospels. And then I charted it. I charted what happened in the last week in all four Gospels. And see, because we weren't fundamentalist Baptists, I didn't have one that involved foreign policy like this. I had like the four Gospels and what happened. And then I realized, whoa, John and Mark should have talked about what day Jesus died. And did they know that he didn't say the same thing on the cross each time? And couldn't you get clear who saw him raised from the dead or not? WTF, this needs an editor. I didn't say WTF when I was four grade. But I called my parents into my room at night and I had a nice little chart. And I said, mom, dad, the Bible you gave me is broken. And they looked at me and they were like, why? I'm like, look, I'm Baptist. Do you see my chart? And Mark, Jesus on the cross gets out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm like, doesn't that make you want to say the fool says in his heart there is no God? What hell? Is Jesus an atheist? But then in John, John, you know the one that begins is like, a virgin conception isn't even cool enough. How about this? In the beginning, the word was made flesh. It dwelt among us. Everything, life, light, and reason erupts and takes up sandals in Jesus and by the time you get to the to Holy Week, they come to arrest Jesus. They're like, where's Jesus? And he's like, I am. Like, they fall over. He says, I am. You know, like, I am like his daddy. 
I am. They fall over. I'm like, how the hell is that related to a guy that's having an existential crisis that doesn't even know if Abba is real in Mark? I'm concerned. Mom, Dad, you gave me a broken Bible. They're like, that's exactly how it works. They're not lying. So maybe one of your moments of deconstruction helps you open up to the fact that we have actually canonized a multiplicity and diversity of testimonies to the risen and present Christ. And maybe right now, the best you can do is John, or no, not John, Mark. I don't know. Why have you forsaken me? And maybe it ends where you were scared and doubted and didn't tell anyone. Because Alicia's timing, I'm going to the next story. But here's some really cool art from the four Gospels. And if I was going to do an excursus on redaction criticism, it would happen here. But it's also in the Homebrewed Christianity Guide to Jesus. Um, now, here's the other one. I know. <laughs> the individual on the right, uh, Kevin, messaged me during this and is like, are you going to invite me to sing at beer camp next year? And I was like, I don't know. Am I going to sing harmonies when we cover Larry Norman? The half of the room that gig is laughing knows what's up, and the other ones, thank your youth minister. Um, so I went to see a Billy Graham revival for the first time, which is a Baptist from the South. It's basically a rite of passage. We don't get confirmation as Baptists. We just get baptized. So your confirmation is when you rededicate your life for the first time at a Billy Graham revival. But this one was so cool because DC Talk came. So obviously, the youngsters are coming to the Lord. Um, and, and here's the thing. Uh, when I was young, I had some experiences that I had never been able to voice. I'd grown up in southern, rural, religious diversity is a kind of Baptist you were. And that meant it was like purity culture on steroids. And so if you are a young child in the third grade and a peer takes advantage of you sexually... You don't know how to process it. You know you felt gross. And you know if you told anyone what they would tell you because you're the preacher's kid and you've actually practiced what to do when someone tells you something they're uncomfortable with. You ask God for forgiveness. And because Jesus Freak is a really cool song and I was sweating and I love Kevin's vibrato, and I got moved. I went down at the Billy Graham thing. And these random people I had never met before heard me say I wanted to confess my sexual sin. And I proceeded to describe it, which is basically being molested. But only way I understood the gospel was it fixed sin. So what if we have to deconstruct the gospel, not because sinners need repentance and forgiveness, but because people that are sinned against and carry shame should not preach have the same prayer when they respond to the gospel as a sinner. Shoving shame into sin fucks the gospel up. And guess what? You can, but you'll tell me if I'm allowed to put it that way when I visit your church in February. Um, but here's why. 
There are lots of things we've done to hurt and harm other people, and they actually require genuine repentance. There are lots of ways we've internalized social, institutional scripts that breed injustice, preserve violating systemic things. You have to confess that, and you have to repent. Metanoia, change the other direction. But if you look at the people that are being crucified, real and metaphorically in the present, and you tell them like you're staring under the cross at Jesus, ask for forgiveness, then the gospel doesn't include the very people, if your Christology is as high as mine after drinking, God has chosen solidarity with in the incarnation. When I don't cross my fingers saying God, it's because if you use the word, it should be worthy of worship. And if we use the God and it's been revealed in someone that shows the flesh of a homeless first century Jew executed by the state as he walked around proclaiming not that you have to ask for forgiveness of sins to get in, but your sins are forgiving because the one he knows is Abba has already made you, knows you completely. The parts you love about yourself, the parts you don't, and all of it is beloved of God. If that's what gets you put on the cross, then when you get there, when you're looking at the cross, you're seeing that the image of the invisible God is the one who's refused to be God without us. Not just the sinners because he's embracing the cross and saying, you can't get rid of my love, I'm coming back. You thought cross, nails would keep me from embracing you. But also those that bear scars and wonder whether you have to ask for repentance because people in the name of God put them in you. The gospel has to be good for the sinner and the sinned against. And if you want to deconstruct shitty gospel, remember, it's not because we need to get rid of it. It's because we live in a world where people bear scars and we give them. That is John Dominic Crossan when we recorded episode eight of Homebrewed Christianity. That would be 1,572 episodes ago. Because the one in the middle there, Elgin, uh, is driving. That was when I realized sometimes you discover that you need to deconstruct a gospel that's only good for the sinner, and then you realize you also have to deconstruct a gospel that's only good for the individual. I became the youth minister that rallied everyone to write letters on behalf of the farm bill. I'm just saying, I did. And guess what happened when my homeboy from Arkansas, my family's from Arkansas, Bill Clinton got a hold of the farm bill, and he was like, he was the one that internalize the neoliberal economic order in the Democratic Party. But that is the long version of this talk, so I'm not even doing it. But here's what happened in the Farm Bill uh, when Bill Clinton made the compromise to actually, what he had to do in order for the right to give money to poor kids in school to eat. So, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Was to subsidize American rice farmers. And why do you love farmers? You should subsidize. We don't want them, to, we want, want to keep family farms here. And guess what happened? Well, when you subsidize American rice farmers, other countries have rice farms. And let's just imagine, hypothetically, you were Rome and or America. And one of the things you did was say, we can subsidize our farmers, but you can't subsidize yours. And then, all of a sudden, a farmer that's only making half of his land growing rice in, uh, in Arkansas can now undersell family farms in Haiti. They then loan against their land. Then the bank goes under. American multinational companies that 
got Bill Clinton and the Republicans to change the farm bill uh, by the banks. And then all of a sudden, within seven years, 80% of the farmland in Haiti is now owned by multinational banks that funded the change of the farm bill. And I was trying to get people to give money to it because I wanted the kids that didn't get, that needed expanded lunch support in my youth group to get it at school. And then I found out we're connected to a system where I thought I was doing a good thing. And it turns out sometimes the best intentions lead to multinational companies ruining Haiti, which we never apologized, repented for, and we shame them as if they're morally depraved people anytime something horrible happens there without knowing that the five or six companies that did all the lobbying around the farm bill did it. So sometimes you think you're feeding your neighbor and you're stealing a farm. That is a level of deconstruction that I think is really essential if Jesus Christ is Lord of something other than your soul. It's complicated. It freaks you out. It's hard to figure out. And that's why I really hope y'all watch the video of Jorg and Leah. It's also why it's important to find out the resources of people that are trying to organize on local labor and local production and patterns of consumption where what's good for your neighbor isn't ultimately undermining the poor in other places. That deconstruction's awkward because all of a sudden you don't have simple answers where if you just give to this or vote for this or do this, you have an answer. Because here's the thing. I had to redo all my taxes and stuff in the last few months because I was in two countries at the same time. Then I owed a whole lot more money. And I realized last year I gave $14,000 to the American military. What, what level of repentance is required for that? I mean, I'm a Patreon partner for all the podcasts that came. You see, sometimes when you tell the story wrong or you tell it small, you miss the point. After 9-11, when I was uh, uh, in college, after 9-11, all the different religious groups come running outside after mandatory chapel because that, that's how Jesus rolled. Start institutions, force everyone to check in when you get to chapel. And it just so happens the Holy Ghost had ordained a proto-Christian nationalist to preach that September 11th sermon, and it was horrible. And then at a Christian college, they try to level up their Jesus by like, oh, we just had an hour of Christian nationalism, whatnot. We should have a prayer circle. So I go join it because I don't want to be out Jesus by my neighbors because we were the only Christian group that let women talk. Um, and I'm sitting there and listening to the prayers, and I'm like, this is really awkward. I don't know if I want to be here. My roommate, Mike, runs off, and I was like, oh, junk. If I look pastorally concerned for why he's leaving, I, too, can leave before I have to pray. And I go chasing him, and I'm like, Mike, Mike, are you okay? Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And, and he turns around, and he, it just imagine, you know, we're draftable ages. This is just happening in the moment and all that. And he looks at me, he's like, what the hell, Trip?" The only thing Jesus said about this day is pray for your enemies. And I just heard 60 people deny Jesus to his face. What happens if the gospel becomes a justification for building crosses and not bearing them? Deconstruct it. But you're not deconstructing it to walk away as if you're not invited to live in deeper beauty, truth, goodness, invested in the value of the interrelated world that you're in. 
you're walking away because what God has revealed and invited us into Christ, through Christ is to be a part of bearing, transforming, and inviting people into deep mutual flourishing. Not protecting yourself by putting the other, whoever they are, on crosses and throwing a cross on top of it and maybe a flag. The last deconstruction that I wanted to share is this. That is downtown Raleigh. If you walk around the square, the Capitol building, one side is First Baptist Church downtown. You get the Capitol and then the judicial branch on the other side. There is a stop for all the wars, monuments to each of the wars that were there. In the bottom right corner, that is my dad, my grandfather, George Hiram Fuller Jr. and George Hiram Fuller Sr. Elgin, the baby that was hanging with Dom earlier, and the youngest one there is Cora. My grandfather is about to pass away of cancer, had uh, chemo treatment, so he would meet Cora as when she was old enough to fly. When we came back to Raleigh to see them, he handed off all of the family history stuff, which included this picture of Hiram Shaw Fuller, who, where my middle name comes from. Uh, I read through his journals. He tells stories of all he did when famine hit, when they'd moved to Arkansas, and they were moving from Georgia to Arkansas. They met up with the other half of the family that came on the Mayflower. And we exaggerate in the Fuller family. So I know Thomas Fuller's on the Mayflower Compact. I've gone through all the research, and he doesn't exist when they get on the Mayflower, and then he comes off. Um, but in the family history, they also say the original Fuller was Moses. So, you know, uh, I don't think y'all are Christians. You understand that really, really important text start in myth, go to legend, and eventually it makes traction with history. Um, <laughs> But I'm sitting there reading this and going through his diaries, and then it gets to all these letters he wrote, the people he commanded during the Confederate War. And he's telling stories. These are the journals of Confederate veterans and their stories. And they sound just like the letters I would write to my friends, many of whom are here, about our past stories. And yet I know exactly what it's attached to. He was one of the people my grandfather would tell me growing up in Raleigh when we would walk around the monuments, family members that were in each war from the revolution all the way around. So when I grew up in Raleigh and would go downtown to see my grandfather, he would rehearse the family as we walked around. Then we'd go to Waffle House, covered, smathered. Uh, sometimes you dice it up. Yeah. And so... This was the story. He's been a part of this. My grandfather was chief master sergeant of the Air Force. He's the highest enlisted soldier in the Air Force. Um, he, was, he had to keep things confidential and left a year early and would never tell us why. He's an odd cookie. And so I tell you this, because when we moved back to North Carolina, my Elgin, our oldest, was six months old when we left North Carolina. And we showed back up 14 years later in the middle of the George Floyd protest. I was dropping Cora, the little baby there, who was then four, off at preschool for the first time at First Baptist. And there was a field trip walking by across in front, in front of First Baptist by the Civil War monument that looks like this. For our Confederate dead. 
I've walked by it, heard the story, and when I heard it, I heard stories of Hiram Shaw Fuller and all the things he did for our family, the virtuous things, something he told his father, who then told his father, who then told Papaw, who told my dad, and he reminded me the last time I saw him before he died, he said, everyone dies, but not everyone lives, choose to live. And that's true, and yet, where he found himself in the world meant that he was choosing to live for some things that were beautiful and some things that were ugly. And all of us carry histories and stories that require a discernment to say, yes, we would like to be someone who just, who that doesn't just live out the narratives that are handed to us. You should learn to live before you die. You should learn to give yourself to something. But what that something is really matters. And my son is seeing a public school class walk in front of the monument. Beside this are a series of cannons pointing forward. And guess what? Elgin starts tearing up. And he goes, why would they do that? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because I'm dropping Cora off and I'm feeling emotional for my daughter going to preschool. And he's like, did you see that? And he points to the monument. I was, yeah, 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 the monument. Like, well, and I start to tell my great, great, great grandfather, Hiram Shaw Fuller's story. He goes, no, did you see what it's written on it? I was like, I don't know. I mean, it's the Confederate monument thingy. It says for our Confederate dead, half of the, half of the school class walking in front of it are black. Why would they put that there? Like, I wrote a comprehensive exam on James Cone. And yet, that monument's really instilled in me in relationship to stories with my granddad, and I was ignorant and blind. There are so many ways we can be ignorant and blind. And when the truth arises, let us deconstruct. And sometimes, it will be people that have come after you. And here's what I'd like you to hear. You want to know what it's like to be an amazing grandparent or parent or a mentor or a teacher. What does it mean to be a wonderful disciple that has communicated the invitation of Jesus? It's when those you've tried to pour yourself into call you out on bullshit. Because like Yoda told Luke in episode eight, it's what you grow beyond. And I'd say this because a lot of us in conversations have things we're wanting to grow beyond. And to get there, you have to admit where you've been. And guess what? You're sitting in a church. It is a religion based on a dude who's about to get taken out by all the principalities and powers. The one who, when we started reflecting on it in the church, you get this crescendo in the Bible that God is love. And yet, if you want to know what that love looks like, it's one where he looks at the people around him, the ones that betray him and deny him, that misunderstand him. And he says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And he did not leave anyone out. So unless you plan on topping Judas, I want you to know 
that the parts of you that you've been honest about, the parts of you you've shared and the parts of you you haven't, the parts of you you love and the parts of you you don't, the parts of your history you're embarrassed about and the parts of them that you've nuanced in ways you want to share to your kids and such, and all those things, all of them are welcome. And the greatest part is that the next time you come to the table, even if you fucked up in the meantime, that you are no longer servants, your friend. Because at the very heart of the gospel is that God has refused to be God without us. And God has refused to be transcendent and make demands in a vacuum, but to be present in intimate materiality. Materiality that even includes marginalized and executed flesh. And it's that very flesh that we proclaim at the resurrection and celebrate at the table. So for all the parts of you that need forgiven, trust me, you got it. But what about the other parts that you haven't deconstructed enough to be honest about? What about the places of shame you've been trying to shut into prayers of forgiveness from sin? All those things, let us receive them because what the world needs is the body of Christ. And guess what? We're always ready to baptize you into it. It's looking for bodies where your goal in each moment is to be faithful to the call or lure of the divine, seeking to make the love that is eternal material in that moment, in that context. Whether it's the multiplicity of testimonies that are written in scripture and written in each of our lives, whether it's weird farm bills that we don't even understand what's going on, all those different textures and all of our different relationships and all the generations that are here now and to come are the very place that he is risen indeed. So guess what? You are known, loved, in the very place God wants to raise. And I'm not crossing my fingers and you don't have to, to receive it. You know how much I know that? Because Flamey's going to sing a fucking awesome song. And then Kevin is going to bring it here. So pray with me really quick. God, and as we sit here at beer camp, having nerded out like champs or pretended we nerded out and drank in the hallways. In our breaths and in our exhales, May the very place we need to let resurrection show up come to us. May we say yes to your insistence upon your coming in those places of shame and brokenness. And may all the places in our walk where you're inviting us to practice resurrection for ourselves, our family, our friends, and even our enemies, tell us that we are the tomb you're inviting to shake and quake. Amen.